to the River Fellowship Podcast. This week, lead pastor Daryl Anderson takes us through 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. For many followers of Christ, engaging people with the gospel of Christ is an intimidating proposition, but these three reasons explain why we must. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. Well, let's get into the Word this morning. We're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. For those of you that are here for the first time, uh, for the last several weeks, we've been in a vision series where we're walking through the vision statement of River Fellowship, and it's a four-part statement, and we've already dealt with the first three tenets of that statement, and that is we want everyone to experience God, to exalt Christ, and to embrace community. This morning, we're going to start talking about the fourth tenet, which is to engage the world. Now, it's important, all four of these tenets are are very important. That's why we have all four of them in our vision statement, and they're all equally important. And we have to be careful, both as an individual and as well as as a church body, that we don't become lopsided and put too much weight on one of these. We all know what happens if you put too much weight in a trailer, the wrong end, how it starts to kind of sway, or the old teeter-totter deal if it's a parent and kid and the parent's on one and the little kid's on the other end and you just sit there and the kid's just hanging in the air, nothing's really happening the way it's supposed to happen. That's what happens if we get these uh, tenets lopsided or put too much weight on one. Things start to get a little messed up. Things don't happen the way they're supposed to happen. So all four of these are equally important. However, I think for many of us, the engage the world may be the most difficult for us. It may be the hardest for us. I think part of that reason is to really engage the world, we have to come out of our comfort zone. Uh, It puts us in some places that make us a little vulnerable, uh, put us in some maybe some environments that we're not real comfortable with. Uh, Also, there has to be a real intentionality about it knowing that when we're actually with people that we're really thinking intentionally, I'm engaging the world for the cause of Christ. Now, we've chosen this phrase, engage the world, very carefully and very specifically. The word world in Scripture has three connotations. It's based on the context. One, it can mean just the entire universe. Secondly, it can mean the world system. And sometimes it applies to the, the sinful dynamic of the world. You know, don't be of the world. But the third simply means people. And that's the context that we're applying this is with people. We are to engage people. But the word engage has two connotations to it as well. The first means to become involved in or to be in contact with. The second aspect, though, is to attract or to interest. In other words, the idea is that we interest someone in something and cause them to continue to think about that. That's what that word engage means. So when we say we want to engage the world, what we're saying is we want to become involved with people. We want to connect with people. We want to be in contact with people so that we can attract them. We can interest them in Jesus Christ, a relationship with Jesus Christ, and get them thinking about that over and over. Create some attraction and some desire to think about that. That's what we're talking about when we say we're to engage the world. That takes some intentionality to that. But that's where we're headed. So today, um, 
I want to talk first about why we engage the world. Next week, we'll talk about how we engage the world. And when it comes down to engaging the world, we, we do that one just individually, just as believers. We are to engage the world as an individual. But we're also to do that corporately as a church body. And we're in the process of developing that. As Martin mentioned, we're seven weeks in, so we're still in the process of developing corporately how we're going to engage the world through ministries and through organizations. We have a ministry team that that's their heartbeat is to do mission and engagement in the world. So in the next few months, we'll be connecting with that team and strategizing how we're going to do that corporately. So we'll be giving some information about that. But all of us should be doing it individually. So this will apply to both individually and corporately. So let's look at our passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Uh, this passage is a pretty ominous passage. Part of my devotion time, I read, I'm reading through the New Testament, but I'm reading it one chapter at a time. I'm not trying to just you know, set a record and blaze through it. I'm reading a chapter at a time so I can really digest it and kind of meditate on what that cha chapter's saying. A couple of weeks ago, this chapter was the chapter that I read. And ever since that morning, uh, this verse has been haunting me. It's been convicting me. It's been challenging me. It's been penetrating my spirit. And you're going to know why here in, in just a moment, because it's an it's a ominous passage. But in the passage, I want to talk about three reasons why we must engage the world. And the first reason is because God loves the world. <laughs> I mean, it's the foundational principle that sometimes we forget that God loves the world. Verse 8, we see this uh, really inferred. It talks about the gospel. The inference here is that God has offered the gospel. He's offered grace. He's offered his son. He's offered salvation. John three sixteen, the passage most of us know well, for God so loved the world. And the context here is people. God so loved people that he gave his only son that whoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. 2 Peter 3, 9 says that God does not want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone, every person to come to repentance. Romans 5, 8 said God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the first reality here is that God loves people. God doesn't hate people. <laughs> God doesn't desire destruction on people, regardless of their decisions, regardless of their lifestyle choices, regardless of what they may be involved in right now, regardless of what any kind of rebellion they have, regardless of how they think toward him. God loves people, and he wants every single person to have relationship with him. So this inference here in verse 8 is telling us that God was the initiator of relationship. And he was the first one who engaged the world by offering the gospel. But if you look at the rest of that verse eight, it says, but there are those who do not obey the gospel. In other words, this verse 
seems to be telling us that people are not without Christ because of God's choice. They're without Christ because of their choice. Now, this statement opens a huge can of worms. Now, I'm not going to deal with the can of worms this morning. We'll deal with that down the road sometime when we talk more about some doctrinal issues. But there is this concept with salvation of predestination or election. In other words, God has pre-chosen who will be saved and who can even be saved, or free will, free choice. In other words, we have the choice. I'm not going to deal with that this morning other than to say both doctrines are in Scripture. Both doctrines are true. The reality is that God initiates relationship. No one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. And because of God's omniscience, he understands and knows well in advance any choices that we're going to make in regard to that. So we'll talk about that again in just a second. But the point I'm trying to make right here with this passage is that lostness is indicated by this verse as a result of disobedience. Romans 1 says that God has made himself plain to everyone so that we're without excuse. Let me pause for a moment and just say, if there's anyone here this morning and you're not sure about your relationship with Jesus Christ, my heart and my prayer would be before you leave this morning, you would know for sure that you have the relationship with Jesus Christ. If there's been that time when you've received him as your Lord and Savior, you've realized you've sinned, you realize he died on the cross for you to forgive you of that sin and to pay for that sin, and because you invite him into your life, he'll forgive you and save you and give you eternity. If, you've, if you're not clear on that this morning, before you leave, during our response time later, come talk to me, talk to a prayer partner, talk to somebody before you leave. But here's, here's the foundational key here that I'm trying to make, and that is we have to remember God loves people, every single person, regardless of their situation and their choices and their lifestyle. That becomes the undergirding foundation for us loving people. Here's the second reason. That's that the world needs Jesus. They need the gospel. The world's in trouble. People without Jesus Christ are in trouble. And scripture gives a variety of descriptions for those that are without Christ. And none of those descriptions are good. Those without Christ in scripture are described as lost, as blind, as slaves to sin. What's worse, dead in sin. In Romans 1, it says those without Christ are deceived in their thinking. They're darkened in their heart. They're degraded in their bodies and they're depraved in their minds. But as, as bad as the condition seems to be presently, the future condition and the future of those without Christ is even worse. That's where our passage comes in. Look at verse eight. It says that he will punish those who do not know God. Verse nine they will be punished with everlasting destruction. Verse nine goes on to say, they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord. Now this is getting pretty heavy pretty quick. There's a foundational principle here that we have to understand and it's verse six. The very start of verse six, he starts his entire paragraph with this phrase, God is just. He makes that statement and then he carries everything else down after that. Foundational principle, God is just. Now that phrase is similar to a couple of other phrases we see in scripture, like God is good, 
God is love. What that means, what that little word is, that connection word, is that that's God's essence. That's who he is. That's his actions. He can't be anything but that. In other words, if we say God is love, that means the essence of God is love. God can't do anything but love. God can't not, not love. God is good. In his essence, he's good. Everything that he does is good. God cannot not be good. It's the same here when it says God is just. In his essence, he is just. Everything that he does is just. All of his actions are just. God cannot not be just. It's interesting that this same word is used in 1 John 1, 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, it's interesting to me, just because I know in my own spirit, when we say, okay, God's just to forgive us of our sins when we confess it, hallelujah. We want that justice, but God is just in paying the penalty for sin and punishing sin. That leaves a really bad taste, I think, in everyone's mouth, but it's still truth. I think part of the problem is, for us to understand this, is God's justice seems so harsh in comparison to God's love. It's as if these two cannot coexist. I think the problem is we see these two things independently from one another, in isolation from one another, when in reality, they should be combined. We see it as an either or, but it's a both and. Let me go back to predestination and free will for a moment. We tend to see this in the work of salvation, either it's predestination and election, or it's free will and free choice. But in reality, it's not an either or, it's a both and. Even though I don't fully understand that, and I can't fully explain to you how that works, it's a both and because Scripture affirms both. The same is true with God's justice and God's love. We tend to think that God is either just or God is love. When in reality, it's a both and. He is both just and love. We could say that God has just love and he has loving justice. Here's an example of how that works together. God's justice requires payment for the penalty of sin. But God's love provided the penalty for sin. He provided for sin. Though it required a payment, but he provided the payment. Now, what we're talking about here, I'll just be honest, is a hard reality. It's a sobering truth. It's a difficult truth. It's not even necessarily something I enjoy speaking about and teaching on. But the reality is that it's truth. And the truth is those who die without Christ will spend eternity separated from the Father in a place designed for Satan and his demons. No one likes that reality but Scripture affirms that reality. But this reality is so difficult that many people have tried to reinterpret that reality. They've tried to do something else with that reality and make it not a reality. So some begin to teach universalism, which simply is a doctrine that teaches universal reconciliation, that at some point, every single person will be saved. That at some point, not necessarily even in this life, but it, millennia from now, in the, in, the, in the eternity future, 
that everybody at some point, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, everyone's going to realize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and is the Savior, so everyone's going to come to Christ at some point and be saved. The problem is Scripture does not affirm that. So some have said, well, maybe not universalism, but there's no hell. There's heaven, but there's no hell. So if you're a believer in Christ, you get to spend eternity with, with the Father, but if you're not, then you just return to dust and you just cease to exist. Scripture does not affirm that. So some say, well, the problem is Scripture. <laughs> scripture is wrong. Scripture is not true. Some of Scripture is true. Some of Scripture is not true. So we're going to kind of pick and choose in that part. It's not true. Or maybe they're a little bit softer with it, and they say, well, all of that talking about that eternal separation, it's all, it's all metaphor. It's all just symbolic. Well, others try to deal with it simply by avoiding it. They just won't deal with the subject. They won't deal with the passages. They just, they just hope it goes away and they don't ever really have to, to deal with that. But in my opinion, none of those responses are appropriate. What's the appropriate response to the reality that Scripture affirms that those without Christ are in trouble? To me, the response is, let's tell the people without Christ in loving truth what's going on. Let's engage them with the gospel of Jesus Christ and let them know that God loves them and that God has provided the gospel because this passage is talking to those who have not obeyed the gospel. In other words, it's referring to those people that have, have, have been exposed to the gospel, but they've chosen to say no. We can't deal with any of the response, but we can deal with our part of it and it's to realize, one, that God loves them and that their future is disastrous. So our love for them should compel us to become involved with them, become engaged with them, and begin to share the gospel with them. Which leads me to the third reason why we should share the gospel, engage the world. That's because God's called us to do it. It's just a reminder that we've been called and commissioned to do that. Matthew 28, 19 says, go. That's a command, that's an imperative. Go into all the world, go to make disciples into all nations, sharing the gospel. The dynamic is, is we, we're, the, we're the ones that have the answer, and we're gonna talk more about this next week, but here we have God who loves the world, who loves people, who has offered his son. Over here we have a world desperate need of Jesus Christ and reconciliation. We're here in the middle. God's chosen to use those of us that have come to the message of Christ and been reconciled to be the ones that make the message. We are the ones that bridge the gap. He's changed us. He's done a work in us. And so now he wants to use us because the reality is God doesn't just want to do something in us. He wants to do something through us too. Let me give you just a very, very simple visual of what I'm talking about. This is a little PVC, a little pipe used for water. The idea is you have a source of water somewhere. That water goes through the pipe and it goes to some destination, whatever that destination is going to be, but it flows through the pipe. And so in reality, this pipe, one, has water in it, but it also has water flowing through it. It's both, and. This is a cap that you can put on the end of the pipe, and the cap serves one purpose. That's to stop the flow of the water. So at that point, the water is no longer flowing. It's still in the pipe, but it has stopped flowing through the pipe at that point. All right? 
Now, in this illustration, we as followers of Christ are the pipe. God is the source, the world is the destination, and the water is what Christ has done in us. It's the Holy Spirit that resides in us. It's the life of Christ in us. It's the water of life, if you will, that resides in us and flows through us and has changed us and works in us. And so the idea is that God has provided the source of this life and this flow and this water. It's supposed to come into us and be in us, but it's also supposed to flow through us out into the world and impact the world. The problem with some of us, though, is we put a cap on and we stop the flow. The Spirit's still in us. God's still doing things in us. But now he's no longer flowing through us. So when we talk about engaging the world, when we're talking about going out and being who we're called to be, the very simple illustration, all that means is take the cap off. Just take the cap off your life and let what God's doing in you flow through you into the world that needs the water of life. That's all it is. 1990, um, God reawakened um, me to this truth, to this principle, uh, to remind me of the calling that God's called, not just me because I'm in ministry, but all of us who follow Christ. It was the first part of December, 1990. I was living in Odessa, Texas, as I've shared before with some of you, I had a medical event that took place uh, a few months before that, and uh, I was at home just recuperating. So it was about eight weeks or so after I'd recuperated from this medical event. Uh, first outing, first time I could actually get out of the house and go do something. My wife decides, first outing, let's go wash the car. Very first thing I get to do is go wash my car. We're not talking about quick quack where you get to sit in your car and go through the tunnel. We're talking about the old school stall where you get out with the wand and you do it you, you know, by yourself. So we get out. I start this. It's in Odessa, December. It's about 45 degrees. Okay, just remember that. Because of this medical event, I've lost 25 pounds in a few weeks. So I'm, I'm really skinny. My hands are really small. I'm, I go out. I start washing the car, rinsing it. Then I flip it over to the soap. And now I've got the brush and I'm soaping it with the brush. It's just getting all soapy. Now it's getting kind of dirty, soapy. While I'm soaping it, this huge pile of dirty soap lands on my pant leg. Well, some of you may remember this. I don't know. But back in that day, the NFL came out with this deal where they um, had sweatpants that kind of matched NFL teams that you could buy and, and kind of coordinate with the team. I don't know if anybody remembers that. But my mom and dad had bought me some of those sweats. And they were brand new. And I was just wearing them. So I didn't want to ruin those new sweats. So I was going to just sling all that dirty soap off of my leg. But remember, it's cold. I'm 25 pounds less. And so when I go to throw that soap off, my wedding ring just goes flying off my finger out toward the street. So immediately, I'm doing this. I'm trying to find it. I couldn't, I couldn't see it, but I could hear it. Ding, ding. Well, while I'm trying to find it, I see out of my periphery a truck coming down the street, and I remember thinking, that truck's about to hit my ring. Sure enough, ding, ding. 
you hear this crash and it's bouncing out. I never could see it, but I could hear it. I said, that truck just hit my ring. Who knows where it went? So I start screaming for Denise. Come, she's in the car doing the inside clean. Denise, come out of the car. So she comes out. I said, take over, washing the car. I just lost my ring. I'm going to go find it. So she takes over cleaning the car, and I'm over here trying to find my ring. That's the edge of town at that time. There's nothing there, but this car was kind of in the middle of the, of the block. It's all fields everywhere except one, some building far left at the end here, and then a convenience store far right over here. It's only three buildings. Everything else is field. So I'm just roaming all over the place. I'm all in the field thinking it knocked it up in the field. I'm going down the deal across the street. I'm just all over probably 10 or 15 minutes. I'm looking for this wedding ring. I don't find it, can't find it. I'm already ticked. I'm aggravated, I'm frustrated, I'm angry. I come back to Denise. I just kind of help her finish the car. So we're just about to leave. And I thought, no, I'm not leaving. This ring's too important to me. So I'm gonna go back out and look for that ring. So I go back out this time. And this time what I did, I went out into the street, got in the little, you know, little gutter by the curb. And I just started walking down the gutter, looking at the field, looking in the street, looking in the field, looking in the street. This convenience store is about 100 yards from the car wash. By this time, I'm about halfway there. I'm 40 or 50 yards away from the car wash at this time. And I see something shining in the middle of the street. I think, that's got to be my ring. Well, as soon as I see that, another car starts coming. <laughs> I said, no, that ain't happening. So I just kind of waddle out there as fast as I can and come back in. And sure enough, it's my ring. I was so excited, I was so fired up, but the only issue was it was trashed. It was dented, it was bent, it was chipped, it had tar all over it, it had grease on it. I mean, it was wasted. I didn't care. I knew I could take that to a jeweler, get it fixed. I didn't care. I'm just glad I found the ring. I was so excited. I went hobbling back over there to Denise. Hey, I found the ring. We're so excited, so we just rejoiced together. Well, that night, we're in bed. She's already asleep. I'm thinking through all this, just knowing what you know, had transpired over the last several months. I knew God had some type of spiritual lesson that he was trying to, to teach me here. So I, I'm asking for that and kind of praying through that. And sure enough, his spirit spoke to my spirit that night. Went something kind of like this. I'm paraphrasing. So Daryl, you remember when you lost that ring and how devastated you were and how hurt and, and yeah, I do. So do you remember the joy and the excitement when you found that ring. Yeah, I do. You didn't care what it looked like. You just were glad if you received it back. What was lost was found. Yeah, I was. Remember the intensity that you looked and the time you spent looking for that. Yeah, I do, Lord, I do. He said, that's the way I am with my people. I have people who are lost and they need to be found. They're broken, they're bruised, they're hurt, they're full of tar, they're full of grease. They've been run over by car, they, they are trashed. That's okay, because I can fix that. But I want them back. And I want you, with the same intensity you had to find that ring, I want you out in the world, being the instrument, being the tool that will help bring them back to me. That's the message of engaging the world. It's realizing that God loves people so much. He is pursuing them so incessantly. 
He wants to bring them back. But he's chosen to use us as his instruments, as his tools. So this message is not intended to be a guilt trip of what we may or may not be doing. That's not the spirit. Neither is it an attempt to pull emotional heartstrings and get you emotional. That's not the intent either. The intent is just to remind us of a calling that we have, a commissioning that we've been given, an opportunity that we have, an invitation that we have to be a part of something bigger than us, to be a part of impacting the lives of people for all of eternity. Yes, when we engage the world, we deal with felt needs. And there's some things we have to do that they're in real life situations and and issues now that we need to address and help them through. Absolutely. And that's part of what we do. But ultimately, the, the bottom line is that all leads to the greatest need that they have, and that's the need of Jesus Christ, which will not only impact their today, but will impact their eternity. So as River Fellowship, part of what we want to be about is connecting with people and creating an attraction, an appetite, an interest for Jesus. So they'll keep thinking about that and hopefully one day there'll be ones that will say yes. I've received that. Thanks for listening. To hear more messages or to learn more about River Fellowship at Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. Thanks and have a great week.